Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. To go ahead and turn to First uh, Peter, and we're going to be in chapter one. We're going to start in verse thirteen. I'll give you a second to get there. It's just a few books before Revelation, so near the back of your Bible. First Peter chapter one, verses uh, thirteen. And we're going to go all the way through chapter two, verse ten. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you, that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Not with perishable things like gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit, and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a, st- a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for Peter and this letter uh, to your people. And uh, I ask that you would just make it uh, living and active in our hearts and our lives, that you would uh, change us by it and through it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So uh, the last time I I was up here was in December 
Uh, it was one of the Advent sermons, and uh, I was tasked with preaching about hope. And so I went to 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, where Peter talks about um, God's people being, uh, ha- having the joy of being born into a living hope. And so when I was asked to preach this Sunday, um, it, it's always the hardest thing is, is figuring out what you're going to preach. And you have 800,000 th- 800, words of scripture to choose from, 66 books, a million different things you could look at or, or, uh, or study or preach. And uh, I thought, well, maybe I'll just continue in First Peter. And then uh, something happened, it was like a week or two ago, that kind of cemented that decision. And um, Stephanie hinted that I might, I love making her nervous. Stephanie hinted that maybe I might lean a little bit more towards topical preaching. And I said, wait a second, are, are you saying that I'm a topical preacher? So I, I got pretty, uh, pretty stern with her. I told her to watch her mouth when she talks to me. Uh, so I'm hoping this sermon will be led by the Holy Spirit, but it is also a stern public rebuke of my wife from the pulpit. So pretty excited about that. Uh, so we're going to get into some scripture this morning, Stephanie. But before we do that, why don't we get a little topical? So I, w- I want us to take a minute and look at uh, how to be a good reader of an epistle, of a letter. Now, some of this stuff might be obvious to y'all. When I look back on my life, I, I'm like one of the slowest people mentally that there is, I think. I, I look back on things that I didn't know, that I should have known, that seem really obvious to me now. I'm like, how did I not know that? So I wanted to give y'all, there's, there's several uh, points or tools you could take in reading New Testament letters that are so helpful. And when I learned these maybe a, you know, a decade or so ago, I was just dumbfounded at how dumb I found myself to be. So let me give you just a couple of those. I don't have time to go through all of them. Um, if you want to learn more about, about this, about being, being a good reader of scripture, there's a great book. Uh, it's called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, and it talks about how to be a good reader of each genre of scripture. So how to be a good reader of, of epistles or letters, how to be a good read, uh, reader of the gospels, how to be a good reader of uh, the, the historical books, how to be a good reader of wisdom literature. Um, it's a great book. That's uh, how to read the Bible for all it's worth. But I want to give you all just a point or two on how to be a good reader of a New Testament letter. And then if I get the chance to get up here again in a few months or something, uh, I'll probably give you all another couple points and keep uh, working through First Peter. Um, so one of the things you need to do is to understand context. Now that might seem obvious, but, but think about this. Does anybody know anybody who lives in North Dakota? Anybody? Oh, Topher, you do? Shoot, man, I was hoping nobody, all right, I'm, I'm going to go with this anyway. I was thinking for sure nobody here knew anybody that lived in North Dakota, mainly because nobody should live in North Dakota. It is a frozen, hostile wasteland. But I want you to, to just think about this scenario. You, you fly to North Dakota, you go to some random town, you rent a car, you go to some random town, you drive down the street, and you just pick a random mailbox, somebody you don't know. You open that mailbox, and you commit a federal offense. You steal a letter out that postal employee Newman just delivered, and you open it up, and you read it. Now, you don't know whose mailbox you just took it out of. You don't know who they are. You don't know who wrote it. And yet, you try to read this letter. How much are you really going to understand? Now, if they're talking about some really general things in this letter, you might be able to glean a lot from it, but you're going to miss at least some of the context from not knowing who wrote it and not knowing who it was written to. Now, when we're approaching a New Testament letter, you have a couple of other really big obstacles beyond what I just mentioned, 
because that's there if you don't do just a little bit of homework. The other obstacles you're dealing with are this mailbox that you're pulling it out of is 2,000 years old. This mailbox that you're pulling it out of belonged to somebody who lived on the other side of the world 2,000 years ago, and they spoke different languages from you. So you're reading a translation, which is still great. It's, we have good translations, so that's not an issue. But there's, there's these other obstacles in the way where, listen, God can still use our ignorance if we just open up First Peter and start reading. He can still speak to us and tell us what he wants to tell us, right? But we have these tools available to us, so we should use these tools and try to be as good a reader, especially if we're going to be reading scripture our whole lives. Let's use these tools and try to understand some things. So there's some real basic, easy tools you can use to gain that knowledge of context to help you understand more of the nuanced things that are being said uh, in these New Testament letters, like who wrote this? And not just who wrote this, because you can say, well, Peter, that doesn't give you any information. So you need to ask one more question, and it's simple. What was he like? So how did he grow up? What was going on in his life when he wrote this letter? What caused him to write this letter? What, what inspired him to say, I really need to tell these people this? The next question is, who did he write it to? And again, take it one step farther. It's not just the, the Gentile background believers of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, although that's who it's to, we need to ask that, that same question again. Well, what were they like? What were their lives like? What were the issues they were dealing with? What were their strengths? What were their resources? How did they view the world? What was going on around the world, around them at the time? What about the culture that they were within? What was happening culturally? Now, the good thing is you can find these answers really quickly and easily if you are a Christian living in America. We have more resources than you could ever possibly read in a lifetime. You can open up, if you've got any sort of study Bible, you can open up to the beginning of that book and you can spend five minutes and answer those questions. And brothers and sisters, you should do that. We should do that. Because that is going to bring to life more and help us understand more what God is trying to say to us and that is the goal of reading, right? It's not what can I get from this book, it's what is the author saying? That's the goal of reading. So another tool that you can use is... Um, understanding how New Testament letters were both written and delivered to the recipients. This is way different than how we do letters. Much of, much of uh, New Testament letters is familiar to us. Um, we, we have some crossover in our letters with this. But one thing that's really, really different in how we receive letters uh, or, or, or emails or something like that and how they received letters back then was very different. So somebody like Peter especially, he would have always had a scribe that helped him write this letter. Peter was not some incredibly educated man like Paul. Now, Paul still used a scribe oftentimes, but he didn't probably need to lean on them as heavily as Peter would have needed to as a fisherman um, when, when he wrote his letters. Um, but this is the kicker. So when a scribe helped one of these New Testament authors write a letter, they didn't just help him write the letter. They also oftentimes were the person who took the letter to the recipient. And so they would have traveled, in some cases, a thousand miles or more and gone to this town and taken this letter and they wouldn't have just handed it to the pastor of that church and left. They would have gathered everyone, got them all together, and because this scribe was there when the letter was being written and got to help shape the letter with the author and got to understand the heart of the author and what his goals were, 
they now know how to communicate really well the contents of that letter to the recipients. And so that scribe, on behalf of Peter, uh, I think his name was Silvanus, uh, was the scribe of 1 Peter. He would have taken that letter to Asia Minor all the way from Rome, which was a long journey. He would have taken it from Rome, where Peter was, to Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. He would have gathered these believers, probably in a few different meetings in different areas, different towns. Uh, think about Galatia, think about Ephesus, some of these towns we're familiar with, that's all in Asia Minor. And he would have gathered them, to, them together, and he would have gotten up in front of them, and he would have read from start to finish the entire letter. Now, the scribe for Romans from Paul, he would have been reading for an hour out loud. That's a pretty solid sermon. For 1 Peter, um, 15 minutes. That's about how long it takes to read 1 Peter from start to finish. So um, if it helps you, and you don't mind looking like a, some kind of a psychopath in front of your family, when you're starting to read a New Testament letter, whether it's 1 Timothy or Romans or, or whatever, take it, stand up, and read it out loud from start to finish. And you'll be amazed at how that helps you see the whole arc of the letter and what's important to the author. And maybe some of the tones that the author would have taken, and that shapes how we hear and understand um, what is trying to be said here. So just a couple tidbits as you approach New Testament letters. Um, so again, I already gave some of the overview, uh, who wrote it, who it was written to. Um, it's important to understand this letter was written Scholars, scholars give a window of like 62 to 65 AD. It's probably more 64 to 65 AD. And the, and the reason why we think that is because um, I said we like I'm a scholar. I didn't mean that. I'm not a scholar. I'm a photographer. I do that. Um, so like 64, there was this big fire in Rome. And oddly enough, the extremely wicked emperor Nero, uh, none of his properties burned. His palace didn't burn. Nothing he owned burned. Um, and so, you know, there was the thought, well, maybe Nero had something to do with it. Well, Nero didn't like that. It wasn't politically expedient for him. And so he decided to place blame on the most easily blamable people in their empire, which was the Christians. Um, people did not have a favorable view of Christians overall. The Jews really didn't like him. The Roman citizens didn't really like him. Um, there were, you know, rumors and, and speculation that Christians were incestuous because they said things like, I love you, brother, and they thought that was weird. Uh, they called them atheists. They called Christians atheists because Christians didn't view Nero as a god, and they didn't, they didn't worship the other gods of that day, so they viewed Christians as atheists, oddly enough. Um, they viewed them as cannibalistic because they did weird things like every time they got together, they would drink blood and eat a body. So um, there were all these weird thoughts about Christianity. And so it was easy to pin that fire in 64 on the Christians. And so what that led to was persecution. So I was thinking about when we were reading the Apostles' Creed right there. I, that's one of the things I love most about our church is I didn't grow up a in a church with liturgy where we're all loudly participating. And I love hearing my brothers and sisters say these things like in the Apostles' Creed. We're saying, I believe this, I believe this. And you hear everybody around you saying, yeah, I believe that too. And I'll say it publicly. But I want us to think about this. If everybody around us hated us, and if everybody around us was looking, at, looking for ways to hurt us because we believe this, how loudly would we say that? Where would we say that? In what context would we be willing uh, and courageous enough to stand up and say what we just said right here this morning? Just a thought. I'm not 
I'm not saying I would be the courageous one and y'all wouldn't. I don't know what I would do. I don't, I, maybe you don't know what you would do. Um, but it's something that we need to reflect on because that could be a, a reality of our lives someday. Um, the persecution in Rome was intense. Um, to Nero, I think I, I think I might have said this in December, but Nero was known for using Christians as human torches to light his gardens in the evening. He had them hanging from cages and he would light them on fire and they would light his garden. So he was not a very pro-Christian sort of fella. Um, the persecution that was happening amongst the Gentile background believers in Asia Minor, to whom this letter was written by Peter, uh, they were suffering persecution as well. It, it, it doesn't seem like it was quite as intense as what was going on in Rome, but that's not to say that it wasn't intense, so don't hear me say that. They were, they were suffering, their faith was being tested, and Peter was writing this letter in large part to say, I, I know what you're going through, I'm going through it as well. Peter, in fact, uh, spoiler alert, he would be dead within probably months of writing this letter and, uh, and Second Peter. Um, church history has it that, that he was crucified on a cross in Rome just shortly after these letters were written, 64, 65 AD. So Peter was saying to them, as their spiritual father, as the leader of the church of Jerusalem, Jerusalem who find, finds himself in trouble in Rome, I know what you're going through, I'm with you, and especially this, don't stop going. Understand your identity, understand who you are. Above and beyond anything else, the foundation of who you are as a, as a person and as a people, this is what I'm trying to communicate to you. So, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Peter says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Let's, let's look just right there at 1.13. So Peter is giving some language there of, of he's saying, preparing your minds for action. It's, it's the words of like, um, if, if you've heard the phrase, girding up your loins, and that goes back to uh, Exodus 12, 11. I, I, I think this is a stupid example, but I think about uh, there's a friend of mine and I, and we always joke about like, you don't ever go into Walmart unless your shoes are tied and your belt is tight because you might have to run away from something or you might have to like defend your family because it's always so wacky inside Walmart. Like you don't want to go in there with slippery shoes on and then you got to make a run for it. So this is kind of the language that Peter is using. He's saying, you need to be prepared. Now go back to... Uh, Turn to Exodus 2.11 so you can see what Peter is talking about. I'm sorry, not 2.11, 12.11. Exodus 12.11, my bad. Peter says, or I'm sorry, not Peter says. Exodus says, in this manner, you shall eat it. He's talking about eating the Passover meal. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. So, Meal time for a Jewish person was a time to, it was, it was, you know, say middle of the day, between work, work, life was work. And so meal time was reclining. We know this from like how Jesus and the, and the disciples were at the Last Supper. They're reclined. They're enjoying one another's company. They're leisurely eating. Um, it's a time to rest. It's a time to get nourishment. But that's not what was going on in the Passover. And that's not 
the way Peter is instructing these Gentile background believers in Asia Minor to live their lives. He's saying, keep your, keep your loins girded up, keep your belt tight, be ready to move. Now, that might give you a sense of fleeing, like the Exodus, but if you look at the Exodus only as fleeing, you're, you're missing half of the Exodus. Yes, the Exodus was God's people fleeing Egyptian rule and slavery and oppression and all those terrible things that made up their lives for generations. It was also running towards what God had for them. It was running towards the promised land. It was running towards salvation and peace and joy and being a people, again, solely governed by God and not governed by these terrible oppressors and persecutors. So that's at play here, too. As we read all these verses, though, I want you all to keep this in mind because this, to me, this is this shows that the resurrection was real. This is one of those things like Jeff was talking about on Easter Sunday that says, you know, this doesn't prove that the resurrection happened, but man, you really have to consider this. This is the same Peter writing this letter to Gentile background believers, non-Jews. This is the same Peter who, if you read Acts 10, he doesn't get it to the point that God has to give him this vision about these unclean animals being up in the sheet in the sky. You guys remember this, this passage? And, and God tells him to kill these animals and eat them. They're unclean, ceremonial unclean. They're unfit for eating. But God says, Take, kill these animals and eat them. And what, how does Peter respond? He says, no, I can't do that. I'm a Jew. I can't do that. These animals are unclean. And so God says, all right, I'll give you the vision again. And so he gives him the vision again. Peter still doesn't get it. So he gives him the vision a third time. And finally, Peter gets it a day later, almost to the, to the hour he's, he's meeting with some Gentiles, sharing with them about the kingdom of God, and they are entering into the kingdom of God. This is the same Peter that is writing to these Gentile belie- background believers. And if you look at every verse we're going to cover this morning, everything that he says, he is ascribing the history of Israel and Moses, and he's putting it on, he's saying to these Gentile background believers, this is who you are. This is who you are. So you, you might have came from a, a, not being a part of a people, that might be your background. You might be a people who were scattered and, and weren't God's people, but now you are, and not only are you God's people today, here, and now, you can look back on this heritage and this history, and you can go back to Exodus, and that's your people. To me, that's miraculous. That's a, that's a huge change in, in somebody who was so culturally Jewish that Peter couldn't, he had a really difficult time setting it down. But the resurrected Christ and the Holy Spirit changed him. So if you lose that while you're reading these verses, you're doing these verses an injustice because it's, it's miraculous what he's saying. Um, so let's, let's keep going here. Um, chapter 1, verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Continue on with 15 there. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So Peter describes them as new creations. There's, there's a theme here in each little block of these verses. A new this, a new that. So Peter tells these people... They are new creations, and so in a, in a very real sense, they are to be dead to their former selves, to their former ways of thinking and living. And he, and he says to them, essentially, don't look back and don't go back. 
you're being persecuted, the easy thing to do would be to go back to your old ways. It would be back to just being a nondescript Gentile, not one of God's people, not a Christian, not drawing this attention on yourself and this persecution on yourself, but don't do that. That would be the biggest mistake of your life. Um, Some ancient peoples uh, in that part of the world would actually describe, this is how differently we think to how they think about some things. They would describe the future as being this way and the past as being here. And where, where we talk the opposite about it, we say, man, we're, we're going on into the future, and we point this way. To them, that was the future, because it's behind them. They can't see it. The past is clear and easy to see, because it's, it's right here. It's right in front of them. They know what happened. The future is dark. It's, it's behind them. It's almost, it's almost that picture of, like, walking backwards, which I tell my girls all the time. Don't walk backwards into the street. Don't walk backwards into an aisle at the store, because you're going to bump into something. It's that same thing. That's what... That's how they, they viewed that. Um, we see this in Genesis chapter 19. Turn to Genesis chapter 19 real quick. Um, y'all know the story already. But it's the story, uh, actually, don't turn there. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to, I'll just summarize it for you real quick. Um, this is where God is destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. And what does God instruct Lot's family not to do? Don't turn around and look back. That's over, it's done, but, but think about that picture. That was home, and they knew what home was like. What God had ahead of them, they didn't know. It was uncertain. Uncertainty, uncertainty can seem scarier than whatever evils are certain, because uncertainty in our minds can be worse. And so the reason why Lot's wife turned around and looked, I mean, there's probably a lot of reasons, but... That was home. It was, it was certain. It was sure. What God had ahead of them, who knew? And they were, they were asked to trust God. And it didn't happen. And so Peter is imploring these, imploring these believers, don't do that. Don't look back. Don't think back on your own, on your own old ways. Um, don't long for those days where you were without persecution, but were also without God. And without a real future hope. And the thing that he, he begs them to do is to be holy as God is holy. Now, when you read that verse for the first time, if you really stop and think about it for a minute, um, if you understand even a little bit about who God is, that seems like an outrageous statement, doesn't it? Be holy as God is holy. That's like saying, be a giraffe as a giraffe is a giraffe. Are you capable of being a giraffe? No. You can't, you can't be a giraffe. Well, as holy as God is, we cannot be as holy as God is unless we understand what is being said here. And it's not saying to be as righteous as God because God's righteousness is so pure and perfect that we in this life, even from hour to hour, are going to fail at that, unfortunately. What he's saying here is, uh, and I actually heard Greg, I think I heard you I was in the hall and I heard you teaching this this morning, which I thought, this is handy. You were warming some people up here and letting this, letting this get into, uh, into minds a couple times. But um, it's the picture of being set apart. Um, if you think about the holy of holies, it's the separate of the separate. And that's how Peter was calling these believers to live, differently. Differently from the peoples around them. Noticeably different. Noticeably different. That's the call here. Now, righteousness is a component of that. 
right? Treating people well, loving people, that's, a, that's all components of that. Um, but when you read that, don't be hopeless. Don't think, well, that's an impossible task. I, I can't be as righteous as God. That's not the word. It's holy. It means set apart. It's mean, it means when people see you and I, when people walk into here or if they walk into our homes, they should see, even if Stephanie and I are having a disagreement, our daughters should see us respecting one another and loving one another, even in that disagreement. It shouldn't be some ugly shouting match or threats of violence. We should be different than the people around us. That's what Peter was begging them to do. Um, and, and there are a lot of reasons for that. Uh, verses 15 and 16, we've been through that. So um, let's look at 17 to 21 here. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Um, this, is, this is the root of everything here. This is the root of everything. So he's reminding them of where they came from. You came from a, from a place where, where maybe you weren't being persecuted, but your ways were futile. Another word for futile is empty. Your ways, your life, your existence was empty. It was without meaning. It was without purpose. It was without uh, a, a joyful hope for the future. There was nothing in front of you except for despair and darkness and death. That's what your future was going to be. It was empty. It was futile. And Peter is reminding them that that is not their future as God's people. Because they weren't bought with something uh, worthless like gold or silver. They were bought with the precious blood of Christ on the cross. The suffering that they are going through doesn't match the suffering that had to take place in order for them to be bought. That's a powerful reminder. That's a reason I know I need to be in church regularly. That's a reason why I need to hear the word of God regularly. That's why I need y'all to talk to me and have conversations and remind me and hopefully me remind you in just our regular daily lives of what has been done for us because we forget really, really easily, or at least I do. Um, in those verses of 17 through 21, Peter is, is drawing their lives in parallel with a, a new exodus and a new Passover. This perfect, spotless, new, whole Passover lamb of Jesus who paints the doorways for all eternity. It doesn't have to, it doesn't have to be done again. The ways, the old ways of these people Again, it might seem easier to them. They might be tempted at times to think, I should go back to that. To turn around and look back on Sodom and Gomorrah being dis destroyed. But Peter is saying, no, don't forget. Verses 22 to 25, Peter talks about them being people of the new covenant. So again, drawing those parallels back to the Old Testament and the giving of the law. So verses 22 to 25. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. 
So for a natural man, selfishness is the outflow of our hearts. Selfishness. Um, I'm an only child, so it's even more natural for me. Okay? I grew up, I thought the universe revolved around me. Selfishness is so easy for me. For the unbeliever, selfishness is so easy. But we take on characteristics of our parents. And so when God adopts us into his family, we start to take on his characteristics. And, you know, our world today likes to talk about love like it knows what it's talking about. The best human love, which is now worshipped, I would say, in our society. Love is put up there like it is, it is the ultimate thing to be worshipped. And it's not. It's a characteristic of our God. And the best love that you and I can show in this life is a shadow of God's love. It doesn't compare. Again, it's holy. It's, there's, there's a separation between what you and I are capable of, even at our best, and God's normal existence when it comes to love. He, he's the fullness of all those great things. And so Peter's reminding these people that this should be your characteristic. As God is your father, this should be an outflow of your life. That even in the midst of this persecution where you, you might be tempted to, to want to be selfish, self-preservation, taking care of yourself, forsaking others around you who might need you, Peter's saying, no, love one another. Because two things, one, internally, not, I'm not talking about personally, internally, but with inside the body of the church, your love is needed. And this is true still today. Your love is needed. Your presence is needed. I was on a, I was on a shoot I missed last Sunday. Um, I was in Montana. And one of the guys I was photographing, um, he, he made this statement to another guy. They got in this really heated discussion, which isn't normal um, when I'm doing one of those things. But they were talking politics, and then it went into religion. And they started asking each other very specific, very personal questions. And, and this one guy said, I'm a Christian. He said, now I only go to church on Easter's and Christmas, but that doesn't make me any less of a Christian. I thought, well, that's not good. You know, now that, there, there might be some truth to that, but man, you are missing out so much on what God has for you. And not only what God has for you, but what God has for other people through you. Like brother and sister, if you, if you wake up Sunday morning and you think, I don't really need to be there, you're needed. God has given you gifts. That's why I'm thankful that we're not this church with like a celebrity pastor. We have a, we have a, we have a great group of elders, but it's not all about one man. I'm so thankful for that because what that does is that discounts all your gifts and it makes them not necessary or it makes it seem like they're not necessary, but they are. So don't neglect that. It also has a big impact externally. Because in John, uh, I think it's 1335, John says that others will know that you belong to Christ by how, how you love one another, how we love one another. And so the way we love has that impact internally on the body and the health of the body and also shows the world we're different, we're holy, we're, we're set apart, and here you can come and be loved. And you need that. So Peter's reminding them of that. Chapter 2. Uh, verses 1 through 8 here. We're going to hit one, one good block here. Um, Peter is talking about these, again, keep this in mind, these Gentile background believers as the new temple. This is a Jew, a Jewish background guy, Peter, saying this, that these Gentiles are the new temple. Think about the change that Peter had to go through to get to this point. Uh, only God can do that. So Peter says, so put away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy and slander 
Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So um, this, this could be read as like Peter maybe accusing them a little bit of being immature Christians. It's, I think most scholars agree that's not really what's being said here. Um, these believers were being tested regularly. They probably had a pretty mature level of faith. Um, and so really, I, th- I think the point that Peter is trying to make here to these believers is keep longing for pure spiritual milk. And don't think of this milk versus meat. It's not that conversation. It's more of pure milk versus like watered down milk. Milk that's had something added to it that dilutes the nourishment of it, that dilutes the purity of it. It's more of a, it's more a statement of purity um, of what's being intaken by these people uh, in terms of the word of God. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but put in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, a temple, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So just a few verses back, I think I might have skipped this, Peter recites this poem from Isaiah, and he says, and he's, he's talking about these people. He's talking about the, the recipients of this letter. He says, all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of, glass, of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So he's talking about us. He's talking about the people of Asia Minor there as being grass and flowers that will wither and that will fall, fall to the ground. And in a couple months, there'll, there'll be no record that they were ever there. In stark contrast, Christ is immovable. Not only is he immovable, he is the cornerstone that's being laid, that has been laid. Um, So he's not just a stone. He's not just a really good, solid stone. He is a stone that is perfect and true enough to be the cornerstone of a building. Even today in construction, if you're off by just a little bit on the foundation, the house is not going to last very long. It's going to fall apart pretty quickly. The walls are going to start to crack as the foundation settles, it's going to get worse and worse. But Jesus is not just a good stone. He's not just a living stone. He is a living cornerstone. Um, there's also, you could, you could maybe read into it. I don't know if I'm taking it too far here, so don't, don't write this down as like gospel truth. But if you think about Jesus as a cornerstone, you think about God's people throughout the Old Testament being that, that wall. And then it's still part of the same building, but it takes a turn at that corner. And there's that picture of Christianity. Still the same people, still the same God, still the same story, but there's like a curveball was thrown in this Messiah and, and who this Messiah ended up being and what he ended up being like, which was far different than what they had expected uh, before Christ came. And so he continues, so the honor, verse seven, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Uh, here the author, Peter, is, is uh, referring back to the Psalms and a uh, prophecy that uh, in Psalm 118, verse 22, that the stone rejected by the builders of the temple would be, will become its most crucial and foundational piece. We're at our last two verses here, verses 9 and 10. Uh, Peter 
is referring to these, again, I'm going to beat the dead horse, Gentile background believers as a new kingdom of priests, a new kingdom of priests. And he says, but you, Gentiles, you are a chosen what? Chosen race. I mean, he's, you can't use more Jewish language than Peter's using right here. And he's speaking to Gentiles. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness, and not just into like some okay light, into marvelous light, into a glorious future. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Chapter 2 continues, and the rest of the letter continues, and it shows some of what Peter was talking about when he, when he starts referring to um, what they are to run to. Why are, they, why are they to have their belt girded up to be ready? And it's not what you would expect. It's not what would be natural to you and I. He's telling them to be ready to suffer. And in a very real sense, to be thankful for the suffering, which is so unnatural to us, and to be on the watch constantly for the opportunities that their suffering will bring, that their suffering isn't going to be purposeless. Um, I want to close with um, j- just a personal thought this morning. And um, I've thought about, you know, our world today is, is a different world than I grew up in. And I'm not that old. I'm 40. I'm like right there in the middle, you know. So it's not like I'm, a, I'm not an 80-year-old guy looking back on, but things are so different in our society than they were when I was five years old, 10 years old. And so I think about that with our daughters. And, and I was thinking about this and what Peter is saying to these people. And I was thinking what he's saying to them is, is, what, is what I want for our girls. And, and it's really heavy. And that is, I want them, I want Shiloh and Afton to be so firm in their faith that even while the world around them is saying all that stuff your parents taught you and that you heard in your church and you heard in your school growing up, you spent your whole childhood here in garbage. You spent your whole childhood here in things that are untrue. You spent your whole childhood here in things that are ridiculous mythologies. You spent a lot of time here in things that are hateful and, and, and our world today would say morally repugnant. Some of your reliefs are morally awful. Who are you to say this? Who are you to think that? And I want them to be able to say, that's not true. Because I know the truth. And because I know the Lord is good. And I've walked this life with him. And I was thinking, I even want that to go a step farther. But it's something that um, I'm not capable of, of fully seeing through. My wife is way more intelligent and capable and a way better parent than I am. All you have to do is watch us for five minutes and you'll notice that. Um, I don't think she's capable of it either. And there aren't many things that I would say about her where I'd say she's not capable of it. Uh, we need y'all. Um, we, need, we need their school for our family. We need um, my parents to be constantly speaking truth 
I want them to be at a point where if 10 years from now, Stephanie and I went to Shiloh and Afton and said, you know what? We've been thinking about all this stuff. We've been teaching you your whole lives and we're just wrong. This stuff isn't true. Uh, I want them to be at a point where they would say, we love y'all. We respect you as our parents. But in this one thing, we're going to have to just, just buck back against you and not believe you. That's where I want them to be. Um, that's where Peter wanted these people to be. That no matter what they faced, their commitment to Christ wouldn't waver. Um, that's a team effort, y'all. That's, that's relying on the Holy Spirit. That's being saturated, constantly washed by his word. That's having him on our lips when we have meals and talk and see each other. That's being an active part of this church. Um, I'm afraid that if you take any one of those pieces away in our society today, in our world, um, the risk of falling away goes up exponentially. So the good thing is, is that we can encourage each other. The good thing is that we can embolden one another amidst persecution to not just keep walking in a way that our head is down, but our faith is still intact in our heads, but that we can be bold witnesses and that we can be unafraid of speaking the truth, even if it harms us physically, financially, professionally, because that day might come. Y'all seen how fast things have changed the last couple of decades in our society. That might be just around the corner for us, y'all. I'm not saying this to scare anybody. Just we need to be prepared. We need to have our belts tightened and our shoelaces tight. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for, um, thank you for not being a God of uh, worthless prosperity. God, and, and just looking at this scripture, uh, I just think, how, how is... How is the prosperity gospel peddled where we could possibly look at your word for even a second and think that you want us to not suffer or think that you want us to just believe that everything's going to be sunshine and rainbows if we say it out loud? God, we thank you for these examples of suffering from the Gentile background believers in this book all the way to your son on the cross. You show us that faithfulness to you, even amidst the most horrible suffering imaginable, is far better than a fake temporary peace under the guide of our, of our culture around us. God, protect us from that. Keep us from that temptation. Keep us from turning around and looking back at our old lives and our old ways. Keep us focused on what is true and what is good and what is eternal. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.